This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Real pleasure for me to be here. My name is Stephanie Orting. I'm a research neuroscientist at UCSB Brain Imaging Center, and I head the Brain Electrodynamics Laboratory here on campus. As a cognitive neuroscientist, consistently trying to better understand the link between the brain and the mind, I'm sure you will understand that it's a real pleasure for me to introduce you today the impressive Professor Ramachandra, who did major work in this field and also unraveled some of the biggest secrets of the human mind and consciousness. Director of the Center for Brain and Cognition at the University of California, San Diego, Professor Ramachandra has received many honors and awards. He, ha he has written over 100 peer-reviewed articles and has also authored some of the most remarkable general reader science books. His next book will be about metaphors, creativity, and synesthesia. It will come out pretty soon, fall 2007. <laughs> I'm sure we'll be all delighted to read his book and everything about what makes us human and creative. But let's hear him today explaining that to you and explaining the neural basis of synesthesia, creativity, and metaphors. Let me welcome to the podium the divine Professor Ramachandran. Uh, I must first begin by saying this is a very unusual and interesting conference. I've never been to anything like this. Usually you go to you know, stuffy scientific conferences, so <laughs> it's, it's sort of been, been a lot of fun. And um, I especially enjoyed the two, three presentations last night and two this morning. And it opened my eyes to aspects of synesthesia which I hadn't thought about in the past. Um, of course, I'm going to approach the problem strictly from the point of view of a scientist, as a neurologist. And this may seem reductionist to some of you, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and I think the word synesthesia um, takes us all, this is what makes synesthesia exciting. It takes us all the way from just the mingling of the senses, which is what um, which is the original definition of the word provided by Francis Galton, who originally discovered the phenomenon, or systematized the phenomenon in the 19th century, about you know, seeing numbers as colored or tones as colored, all the way to metaphors, when you say Juliet is the sun, or even transcending the senses, where you um, are no longer um, constrained by the tyranny of individual sense impressions, and you transcend them and start talking about synesthesia in the emotional sense. Some of my subjects, for example, when they touch things, every touch evokes a strong emotion. And some of these emotions are ineffable and cannot be described. So you can go all the way to mystical experiences. But I'm not going to do that, because you have to start somewhere. And as a scientist, as I said, I'm going to begin, begin with a very neurological, reductionist approach to synesthesia. And by synesthesia, I mean something very concrete very specific, in the sense that Galton, who invented the phrase, meant it. And in science, you have to be very careful how you use words. You can start using it to mean anything. 
for example, when I'm standing here, I'm experiencing synesthesia. You are a vision, okay, uh, a beautiful vision, <laughs> and then I can uh, so is this this uh, slide projector. At the same time, I can hear noises, people laughing, and at the same time, I see colors. I can touch things. You know, I feel the breeze on my. I can say I'm experiencing synesthesia. But that's if you go that far, it's not science anymore. Okay, so I'm talking about in the sense Galton meant it, which is specifically people, a certain number of people in the population, a certain proportion of people in the general population, who are otherwise completely, quote-unquote, normal, have these peculiar experiences. Namely, when they see numbers, they see them tinged with color. And they'll say, I'm not being metaphorical. They specifically tell you that. They say, I literally see the color red, almost as though it were painted on the number five. Some of them will say it sort of spills out a little. So it's clearly a sensory experience for them, not some abstract, metaphorical uh, figure of speech. And some of them similarly will say every tone evokes a specific color. Now I'm going to try and explain this and then take you on a journey all the way from these very concrete sensory experiences, which I can explain and understand as a scientist, all the way to the lofty heights of metaphor and abstract thinking, which I think are especially well developed in us, in we human beings. Um, now, I'm going to use a very reductionist approach, and um, I just want to say, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to apologize for this because it's essentially the, the method of science. Um, and you may say, well, why bother studying this phenomenon? Everybody knows people have synesthesia. Um, well, well, you know, it's just common sense. What, what you mean by synesthesia? What's there to understand? Well, common sense can be very misleading. This is something that 90% of the population is unaware of. Okay? So, for example, Common sense tells you a cannonball and a pea dropped from a great height, as Aristotle taught people. Okay? Uh, of course, the cannonball is going to hit the ground first. This is common sense. Why do you want to test it? Now, the point is any fool could have taken a cannonball and a pea, gone on top of a building, and dropped them. But nobody in the last 2,000 years since Aristotle thought it worthwhile. You know, well, we know from common sense. Why not go, you know, why bother going up there, spend 10 minutes doing this? Okay? And of course, the reason Galileo, the whole birth of science begins with Galileo, is Galileo said, hey, maybe common sense is wrong. So he did the famous experiment on the Leaning Tower and said, everybody's wrong, and he got tenure for that experiment, by the way. <laughs> okay, so having said that, let me say, synesthesia is not common sense. You have to study it intensively. The other reason people find it uh, dislike scientists dabbling in phenomena like synesthesia is they say, well, this is a reductionist. You're reducing something transcendental and beautiful to these wires in the brain and chemicals in the brain. Well, reductionism um, doesn't necessarily detract from the beauty of an experience. Like, for example, if I say, uh, let me give you an example. Let me pick an example just with brain science, neuroscience. Supposing you're making love to a woman or a man. Let's say John is making love to a woman. And uh, this neuroscientist, this evil neuroscientist, comes and examines uh, the woman's brain when she's having an orgasm and says, well, you know, this chemical is released, these neurons are firing, there's a flux of ion, this peptide's released, and John gets very annoyed and says, you mean that's all it is? And she says, no, it actually that doesn't detract from my experience. In fact, it proves I'm not faking it. That is absolutely real. So, you know, you have to understand that reductionist analysis of phenomena does not, whether you're talking about a rainbow or an orgasm, doesn't detract from the beauty of the experience or of the phenomenon, okay? So having made that sort of clear, let me dive into this phenomenon of synesthesia. As I said, Galton first defined it, and I want to understand what's going on. 
Now, there have been several theories in the past of what synesthesia is, and um, Okay, so what are these theories? Well, one theory is they're just nuts. They're crazy. I mean, what do you mean when somebody says five is red or uh, C sharp is green? It doesn't make any sense. And um, when people don't understand something, they say, well, this person is crazy, and then they brush it under the carpet. Something that they engage in denial, something my colleagues in science are very prone to. Okay? But you have to be very careful when talking to people. Uh, often they're trying to tell you something, especially uh, if you do neurology, which is what I do. Very often, if they say something that sounds crazy, it's not that they are crazy. It means you're not smart enough to figure out what they're saying. Okay? And that's the case with synesthesia, I think. So saying they're just crazy is, is, is not taking you very far. Now, when synesthesia was discovered by Francis Galton, two additional points he made, it runs in families and may therefore have a genetic basis. There may be a gene or genes involved in promoting or creating synesthesia in the human brain. The second point, which has been noticed repeatedly since this time, and we have confirmed this, is synesthesia is eight times more common among artists, poets, novelists, and other creative people than in the general population. Now, why should that be? Why should it be eight times more common among artists and poets? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. I think I can explain it. Um, the second theory is not that they're crazy, but, you know, it's just childhood memories. They've been playing with refrigerator magnets and five was red, and six was blue, and seven was green, and you know, somehow they got stuck with these memories into adulthood. Now, that didn't make any sense, because if it's true, why does it run in families? You, know, you have to say that the same magnets were passed down, or <laughs> something ridiculous like that. But it's something you have to bear in mind as a possibility. The third idea is that they're sort of acid junkies and potheads. And again, well, I mean, this fits the observation which I have made, that it's much more common in Berkeley than at UCSD. Okay. <laughs> Uh, again, this doesn't really eliminate, uh, doesn't, it's not an explanation for synesthesia. What it means is that some drugs create this propensity, and it's an interesting question. In neuropsychopharmacology, why would this drug or any drug promote synesthesia in people? And that's an interesting question, but it's not an explanation. It's just telling you that certain chemical substances can enhance its ability. The fourth explanation is more ingenious, but hard to nail down, and that is these people are just being metaphorical. Just as when we say uh, cheese is sharp, cheddar cheese is sharp. Well, cheese isn't sharp. You touch it, it's soft. So why do you say it's sharp? Well, you say, well, no, being metaphorical, it's, it tastes sharp. But what do you mean tastes sharp? Why are you using a tactile metaphor to describe a gustatory taste sensation? So there's a circularity going on here, right? So what I'd like to do is turn it upside down and argue as we go along, synesthesia is a concrete sensory phenomena, you can explain in terms of brain wiring and neurochemistry. And that, in turn, is giving you an experimental handle to understand what metaphors are and what abstraction is, right? So saying that synesthesia is just a metaphor doesn't satisfy a scientist because it's trying to explain one mystery with another mystery, and that never works in science, right? Synesthesia is mysterious. And you say, well, it's explained by, you just, it's just a metaphor. Well, what the hell is a metaphor in scientific terms? We don't, we, don't have any, we don't have the foggiest idea, if you'll pardon the metaphor, right? So in other words, what I'm going to do is turn it upside down and say, you can, get, you can understand synesthesia scientifically, and that gives you an experimental foothold for understanding more complex, elusive aspects of the mind, such as metaphor and abstract thinking. Now, how do you do this? Well, first of all, in science, you need to show something is real. These people are not making it up. And 
They're not being just metaphorical. Well, how do you know that? Well, we did a very simple experiment. First of all, we found that it's much more common than people realize. People used to say one in 10,000 people are synesthetic, or one in 1,000 people are synesthetic. Since the time of Galton, people have repeatedly said it's extremely rare and exotic. Now, this doesn't include phenomena like, well, it is the East and Juliet of the Sun is also a form of synesthesia. Then it's very common. All of us here, well, not all of us. Most people are capable of some kind of metaphorical thinking. If you want to say that, then it's extremely common, right? But I'm talking about this specific type of synesthesia, which Galton originally used, this intrasensory mingling. And that people thought is extremely rare, one in 10,000, one in 1,000. We find one in 100 people has it. So it's actually quite common. In my large classes I teach, sometimes you know, a class of 300 students, there'll be three or four who come to me later and say, oh, I have that, but I never told my parents. <laughs> or, or I have that, but I thought everybody had it. You know, what's a big deal? So you get both reactions, OK? And then we said, well, how do you prove this? Well, first of all, they'll say like five is red and two is green, right? They'll make that statement. Now, how do you know for sure, right, that that's what's happening? So we created this computerized display made up of a whole bunch of fives and embedded in them are a bunch of twos, which are hard to find. There's a two there. Maybe there's a two there, okay? They're, they're sort of embedded there. They form a shape, either a triangle or a square or a circle or some shape. When normal people, I should say non-synesthetes, look at this, they take ages. They take, when I say ages, from a scientific standpoint, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. Finally, they discern a shape by finding where the twos are. They're hard to find. When a synesthete looks at this, he says, oh, I see a red triangle upside down. And he does it in a matter of a couple of seconds. Now, if he's crazy, how come he's better at it than us? Okay? So this shows, and he says, I see a red triangle popping out against a green background. This shows it's a legitimate sensory phenomenon in those synesthetes that Galton was talking about. Now, this is only true in about one out of four or five synesthetes. The remaining three or four say, well, I can kind of find them, but I don't see a red triangle pop out. But that's also a legitimate form of synesthesia. We call them higher synesthetes. Lower synesthetes, higher synesthetes. I'll elaborate on this distinction a little bit later. So first, we've shown it's a legitimate sensory phenomenon. They're not crazy. The other thing we find, well, the other question, oops, why, where does it happen and why? Well, again, here I'm going to take a very reductionist stance. Why would people see numbers as colored? Well, it turns out there's an area called the fusiform gyrus in the temporal lobes. My friend, uh, sorry, my colleague, my grad student, Ed Hubbard and I were looking at a diagram in the brain. That green patch is the color area of the brain. That's where colors are processed by the brain. Samir Zeki showed this is called V4. We were struck by the fact that the number area in the brain, this red circle, you know, how do you know it's a number area? Well, people have done brain imaging, done all sorts of experiments to show that it's a number area. Um, that area recognizes visual shapes as numbers. It's right next to it, almost touching it. So what's the likelihood that the most common type of synesthesia is number color, and they're right touching each other in the brain? So we said this, this can't be a coincidence. So maybe there is some cross-wiring, right? So anytime a normal person sees a number, he sees just a number and processes it higher up and sees a number. But in these people, there are wires going between the color and the, sorry, the number and the color. So every time he sees a number, a particular color is evoked in the brain. He says five is red. Okay? Well, how do you test this? Well, we did a number of brain imaging experiments. If you show a normal person a number, this is the only area that lights up. If you show a normal person a colored number, this and that light up. If you show a synesthete a black number, only this should light up. But in fact, that lights up as well showing that the synesthete ha does have some cross-activation of the color area in the brain. Let's just show you another diagram of the number and color region cross-activating. So the question is, why does this arise? Why would some people in the population have this cross-activation? 
Well, the clue comes from the fact that it runs in families. So what we know is when you're infants, everything is connected to everything in the brain. It's not literally true, but there's a great deal of redundancy or an excess of connections in the fetal brain and in the infant brain. And the way the adult brain develops is there are genes involved in pruning the excess connections to create the modular architecture of the adult brain, the separate brain regions performing different tasks. Now, if something goes wrong with the pruning, if there's a gene defective, then adjacent brain regions remain connected. And that's what's going on in synesthesia. That's why it runs in families. There may be genes which are involved in uh, pruning and, and cross-activation. I mean, these are damaged, or these don't develop properly. You get defective pruning, and you get the phenomenon. Now, this is true of a set of synesthetes. We call lower synesthetes. Remember, one of the simple experiments we did on these people, and since the time of Galton, nobody had tried this. So five is red, and six is blue, and seven is green, right? We said, well, what if you show them, instead of the, uh, show them a Roman five, V, or a Roman six, instead of the Arabic five or six. By the way, it's, it's actually Indian, it's not Arabic. It came from India, the number system and zero and all of that, then taken uh, across to the Caliph of Baghdad. From there, it spread to, uh, to uh, Spain, and then from Spain to the rest of Europe. And by the way, originally, when the, when the number zero went from India as a place marker through the Arabs to Spain, they called it cipher uh, because of the connotations of, of this being something mystical and incomprehensible. And it never was accepted by the Europeans for another 200 years till Fibonacci came along and then transmitted to other people. And then it was widely used in Europe and people started using it. Before that time, of course, during the Roman times, you know, when they were using Roman numbers, six and seven, it took an entire wall to multiply three, I mean, 13 by 15, right? Some of you may not know this. Okay. So now it's interesting that you take these numbers and instead of giving them Indian numbers, what if you gave them a Roman number five or six? What happens? Do they see the color? The answer was absolutely crystal clear. They don't see the color. They say, well, it looks like, I, mean, I know it's a five, but it doesn't look colored. Right? Now, that's very interesting because, in fact, what it shows is it's not the numerical concept, the high-level concept that's driving the color. It's the visual appearance of the five or the six that's driving the color, which shows, again, that it's a concrete sensory phenomenon, not some high-level mathematical connection with color. Now, that was only true, though, of one-third the synesthetes. Then we came across synesthetes who not only were numbers colored, but they would say days of the week are colored. Monday is red, Tuesday is green, Wednesday is chartreuse, Thursday is uh, pink, and so on and so forth. Not only days of the week, months of the year were colored, right? December was yellow, January is green, February is red. They're quite clear that they were experiencing this sensation. No wonder people thought they were crazy. What do you mean Monday is blue, right? Well, remember my rule. If somebody says something, you think they're crazy, usually you're not smart enough to figure it out. Now, just think about it. What do days of the week, months of the year, and numbers have in common? Sorry? Yeah, they're a sequence. They're a sequence. Now, where might sequentiality be represented in the brain? It turns out there's a specific brain region. And that is this region of the brain called the angular gyrus, which is part of the inferior parietal lobule, especially huge in humans, that region of the brain is specialized for uh, number. We don't know about sequence. It's specialized for numerical calculation. And it's destroyed. You ask somebody, what's 17 minus 3? He'll say 11. Now, the guy is perfectly normal in other respects. He can speak fluently. Everything is fine. But he has a syndrome called Gerstmann syndrome. He can no longer divide and subtract. He can do, still do multiplication because that's learned by rote. 
So it's kind of overlearned, and he just says five, month, five, by, five into four is five, five times four is 20. Right? But if you ask him to subtract or divide, he can't do that. And he has other problems which I won't go into, which I'll get to later, actually. Okay, so, so what I'm claiming is there is where the numerical concept of sequence is stored. And maybe days of the week, months of the year, are also stored in that region of the brain. And we're testing this now by zapping that region of the brain and seeing if they lose the ability to name which day is ahead of which day or which month is ahead of which month. Uh, now, this is very interesting because some of you may remember Warren McCulloch's famous remark. Numbers are very abstract, right? What is a number that a man might know it, and what is man that he might know number? was a famous remark uh, that Warren McCulloch made. And amazingly, that ability is localized fairly precisely in a fairly narrow brain region, even though it's an extraordinarily high-level concept. Okay, so... Now, it's coincidentally, the next color region in the hierarchy is close to that number area. So colors are first processed here in terms of wavelength, and higher order color perception occurs here, and that's close to the higher level number area, where numerical concept is. So if the cross-wiring occurs here, you get a number color synesthesia. Here, if it occurs here, you get a numerical concept color synesthesia, depending on where that abnormal gene is expressed. If it's expressed, and genes can be expressed selectively by transcription factors in one region of the brain or another region of the brain. Now, what if the gene is expressed throughout the brain, this cross-activation, cross-wiring gene? What happens then? Right? Remember I said synesthesia is eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists. Why should that be? Well, many of my scientific colleagues say, well, that's because they're nuts. They're crazy. Okay? Now, that's not an explanation. Right? Why should it be? What do they all have in common? Anybody? Creativity and metaphor, the ability to link seemingly unrelated concepts, as when Shakespeare says, it is the East and Juliet is the sun, or when the Indian poet Tagore said of the Taj Mahal, it is a teardrop on the cheek of time. Now, this is a beautiful metaphor, and, and, or Shakespeare. You don't say, Juliet is the sun. Does that mean she's a glowing ball of fire? Right? No, you said she's warm like the sun, she's nurturing like the sun, she's radiant like the sun. Your brain instantly forms all the right connections, even though conceptually they're utterly different, a young woman and a glowing ball of fire. Right? By the way, uh, uh, schizophrenics do make those funny associations. They'll say it's a glowing ball of fire. They don't understand metaphor, but it's a whole another talk. Okay. So, so there are lower synesthetes, higher synesthetes, higher, and then we're talking about artistic types who can link seemingly unrelated concepts and if high-level concepts are also represented in different regions of the brain, we've already seen the example of numbers, then a cross-activation creates a propensity for leaking, uh, linking seemingly unrelated ideas, in other words, a propensity towards metaphor and creativity. Okay? So you can see how we have started, and now we're doing experiments, not us actually, but I'm using we in the genetics and scientists, but people at the Rockefeller Institute are trying to get a big family of synesthetes and then cloning the gene or genes for synesthesia. Right? So you can then start with a gene and then go to the brain areas, fusiform gyrus. Right? You can do brain imaging, which we have done. You can do specific psychophysical experiments, show this is real, they're not making it up. The pop-out effect I showed you, and a number of other experiments, which I don't have time to go into, showing it's a legitimate phenomenon, these people are not crazy, and you can actually do brain imaging to show that is the case. Then we can talk about higher synesthetes and lower synesthetes. You can go all the way to metaphor, creativity, and uh, linking concepts. Now that, That's the beauty of science, especially cognitive neuroscience, you can all the way go from the reductionist aspect 
to the lofty abstractions of Shakespeare. Okay. Now that's just the beginning. Now, so it runs in families. I told you about Angela Gyrus, more common, common artists, poets, and novelists. That shows you the effect of contrast. I won't go into it. But if you take the number five and just lower the contrast, so you can still see the number, but it's light gray on dark gray, the color vanishes. So this again shows if this is just high, you know, concept of the number, it should still be there. So it's a sensory phenomenon. If the neurons are not activated adequately, you don't get the cross activation. That's why the contrast matters. Uh, okay, let's keep going. I'm going to skip all this because it's about very specific aspects of synesthesia. One thing I will mention is we did find one colorblind synesthete. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it sounds like an oxymoron. How can you have a colorblind synesthete? Well, the reason it turns out is a colorblind person has no receptors in the eye for colors. That's why they see, don't see colors in the world. But this chap says when he sees numbers, they're colored. Now, how is that possible? It's because even though his receptors in the eye are missing, his color area in the brain is still functioning fine. So what happens when you give him a number, the number area is activated, and it cross-activates the color area, so the person sees the color, which he can never see in the real world, but only see when he sees number. And he calls these charmingly Martian colors, because he can't see them in the real world. Okay? So this, by the way, supports strongly this cross-activation hypothesis and negates the idea that this is childhood memories, because how can you have a childhood memory of a color you've never seen? Right? So this demolishes that argument. Okay, now, um, okay, now you say, I want to take you away from synesthesia into the realm of metaphor and other types of cross-sensory intramodal interaction. And showing that all of you have something like this in your brain. So here I got two abstract shapes, uh, funny shapes. One of them, so this is Martian alphabet, okay, Martian alphabet. Just as you've got five is five, six is six, seven is seven, each shape has a certain sound and a certain numerical concept. Each of these shapes has a name. One of them in Martian, one of them is Kiki, the other is Booba. How many of you think this is Kiki and this is Booba? Raise your hands. How many of you think this is Booba, this is Kiki? Raise your hands. Well, all of you, okay? Every now and then there's a mutant in the audience, but majority of you see, the, and I've never taught any of you Martian, and none of you here is a Martian. How come? Well, it's because... Your brain says the sudden inflection of the visual shape mimics the sound in your ear, the sound in the auditory cortex, doing ki-ki. That inflection is being mimicked by the visual inflection. So you're all doing this cross-modal abstraction in your brain, right? Now, the difference between this and synesthesia, synesthesia is arbitrary. There is nothing read about five. But I'm arguing that understanding synesthesia is going to give you a, a way of approaching this more difficult problem. Now, this also leads you to another question. Remember I said the synesthesia gene, if widely expressed, makes you more metaphorical. In a sense, these are metaphors, if you think about it, right? Makes you more, it's taking the common denominator between two unrelated things, sound and sight, and abstracting it, okay? Now, I said synesthesia gene, if it's expressed throughout the brain, makes you more metaphorical. Now, why would such a gene survive to make you see five is red, and six is blue. It's completely useless. And if genes are useless, they will not survive, right? One in 100 people won't have it. It would have been eliminated through, th through hundreds of thousands of years of natural selection. It survived because it has a hidden agenda. And this often happens in biology. You've got a, what's called the sickle cell anemia gene. You see this, this 
very Mediterranean countries, right, and in Africa. So you see the sickle cell anemia gene, if it's present only in one copy of the gene, uh, you, it makes you resistant to malaria because it makes the blood cells resistant to malaria. If you have two copies, you die, okay? But some of them die, but it's a price to pay because the majority of people become resistant to malaria, and, uh, and they don't die, and they propagate the gene. So that's the hidden agenda of the sickle cell anemia gene, the lethal gene, because in most people it's not lethal, it makes them actually resistant to malaria. So what I'm arguing is the synesthesia gene has a similar hidden agenda. The reason it was preserved in evolution and through natural selection is because it makes some people in the population creative and metaphorical and link ideas and artistic, okay? Now, you see, people often ask me when I give these lectures, they say, well, why, if it's that good, why don't we all have it? Well, the reason is twofold. One is natural selection takes time. Maybe a few thousand years from now, everybody will have it, right? But the second answer is you don't want everybody to have it because you don't want everybody to be creative and you know, metaphorical. Supposing the neurosurgeon doing brain surgery on you, you don't want him get him getting creative and metaphorical, right? <laughs> so you need this whole spectrum or diversity of human ability, right? And, and you need people like artists, poets, and novelists. And then you need very you know, engineers and scientists and less creative types, okay? Or not scientists, but engineers. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we talked about boobas and kikis, okay? Now the next question is, what part of the brain is doing this? Now I don't want you to think of this as some trivial thing, and I'll explain why, some little illusion. I think it's taking place in this region of the brain, which we encountered earlier called the angular gyrus, involved in numbers and mathematics and concepts. It turns out, in the... 19th century, there's a vicious debate between two great Victorian biologists, uh, Richard Owen and Th Thomas Henry Huxley. Not Aldous Huxley, but Thomas Huxley. His great-grandfather, Grandfather Stewart, you would know. Great-grandfather, yeah, Thomas Huxley. And these two titans clashed over this and argued about this for nearly 20 or 30 years. Owen was a creationist. He believed that the human brain is divine and utterly different from anything that preceded it and has, in fact, to prove his point, he dissected it and he said there's a special structure called the hippocampus minor in the floor of the fourth ventricle which is not seen in any of the great apes. And he says this structure is what gives man his soul and make, makes him absolutely unique, right? Huxley dissected brains and said this is bullshit. There is no such structure in the human brain. It's a continuous, you know, evolution. And I think, funnily enough, they're both correct. I think that there are things that make us unique, but it's not the hippocampus minor, right? It turns out it is this structure, the angular gyrus, which split off from the whole inferior parietal lobule and is unique to the human brain, right? And not only unique to the human brain, it went, underwent an accelerated evolution. You see it bigger in primates than in other mammals, much bigger in the great apes, and absolutely enormous in humans, especially on the left side. Now, what drove the accelerated enlargement and development of the angular gyrus in the human being? Well, one tangential remark. This structure is strategically located between vision, which comes from the occipital lobe, touch, which comes from the parietal lobe, hearing that comes from the temporal lobe. That's where it's located. And it's strategically located for synesthesia, for mingling or combining the senses. Right? Now, why would such com combination of senses be especially important in the evolution of hominids, in the evolution of humans? Well, first of all, when this is damaged, right, it... We find patients with Gassman syndrome lose his ability to say, this is booba, that's kiki. And we have a number of these examples, not just two, obviously. 
And they have great difficulty saying which is Buba, which is Kiki. Now, why would that be? And what, what has this structure got to do with this? Well, the answer is, look at this. It's not some trivial, amusing visual illusion. This shape, Kiki, right, is a bunch of photons hitting your eye in parallel. The sound Kiki is a bunch of hair cells excited sequentially in your ear. These two patterns have absolutely nothing in common, right? But the brain abstracts the essential property of kikiness, jaggedness, from the sound and the, and, the, and the visual shape. Not to mention, now you come to here, the undulation of the contour mimics the booba sound in your, um, in your hearing. And again, the brain abstracts that property. Not to mention when you say kiki, your tongue hits the palate, kiki, and comes down quickly, whereas when you say booba, booba, it undulates on your palate. So the brain is performing this amazing feat of abstraction from seemingly unrelated patches of neurons, which are doing, each doing their own computation. The brain is able to abstract this. So the beginnings of the human process, of the process we call abstraction, starts with this phenomenon and this gyrus, the angular gyrus in the human brain. That, the accelerated evolution of that, enlargement of that, is what I claim made us human. It's not the only thing, but one of the important things in human evolution, one of the more important events in human evolution. Okay, now comes the big punchline. Well, several punchlines. Okay, so why did this ability to evolve in the first place? To do booba kiki? Right? Doesn't make any sense. Well, it turns out, now by the way, I want to say here as a sort of a, uh, make it quite clear that I am, being a scientist, I believe in natural selection and evolution. That doesn't make me an atheist. In fact, as a scientist, I'm an agnostic, right? A term that, by the way, was invented by Thomas Henry Huxley. Um, but I do believe in evolution through natural selection. And I don't agree with, it's ironic, uh, I don't agree with intelligent design. It's ironic that our President Bush champions the cause of intelligent de design when his own existence is a living negation of any such principle. <laughs> Okay, so anyhow, uh, anyhow, so, okay, so, so, I, I don't want to step on toes here, but, <laughs> um, okay, so, in evolution, how did this structure evolve? Why did this ability evolve? The answer, believe it or not, because we were on treetops, and when you're in treetops, you have to reach out and grab a branch, and a, grab, a branch is oblique, what does that mean? All your muscle twitching in your motor area, the pattern has to exactly match the obliqueness of the branch. So photons are hitting your eye obliquely, and the brain has to match that with precise hand movements, oblique movements, which are in the motor area in the brain. And this matching is akin to what I'm talking about, this cross-modal, cross-sensory abstraction. And that's what created the selection pressure, reaching for branches, to lead to the accelerated development of the angular gyrus. But once it was in place, and it could perform this amazing feat of abstraction, it set the stage for other types of abstraction, which human beings are good at. Buba kiki, or indeed metaphor. What is metaphor but an abstraction? It is the east and Juliet and the sun. Nothing in common other than radiance, purity, warmth. The brain is abstracting this, ignoring all the superficial differences, and saying that's the common denominator. Just as you ignore superficial differences between the sound kiki, which is all in the hearing modality and photons hitting your eye. You don't say these are photons, that's you know, hair cells. You say what's abstract is the kiki property. Okay? 
So it set the stage for the emergence of abstraction, abstract thinking, five pigs, five donkeys, five departmental chairmen, five tones. Nothing in common except fiveness. And again, that happens in the inferior parietal lobule in the Anglo gyrus. And by the way, the inferior parietal lobule is present in all the great apes, but in the humans, it's split into two. The angular gyrus, which I'm talking about, and another structure called the supramarginal gyrus, which is involved in freedom of action, volitional action, so free will. Again, maybe in, enshrined in specific cortical structures in the brain. Okay? Uh, okay, so now, what about metaphor? Well, it's also a form of abstraction. What happens when the angular gyrus is damaged in the left side? They become incapable of doing booba kiki. I already told you that. But in addition, they are terrible with metaphor. Right? So if you tell them all that glitters is not gold, what does that mean? The guy says, remember, he's OK in all other respects. He has problems with numbers. He's got Gerstmann syndrome. But now what we have discovered is these people are metaphor blind. So he said, all that glitters is not gold. What does that mean? He says, well, you know, it could be a shiny metal, but it doesn't mean it's gold. It could be copper. It could be an alloy. Um, and I said, well, I know, but does it have any meaning beyond that? He said, oh, yeah. I said, what? Well, he said, when you go to a jewelry shop, you have to be very careful. Because those guys are out to rip you off. And you have to take the specific gravity of the metal to know for sure that it's gold. Because he's not stupid. He's telling you to take the specific gravity, da, 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 you know. So we sent this paper off to a journal to publish. And the referee, as, as we expected, um, said, well, maybe they're just stupid. You know, there's some brain damage, and they can't understand metaphors. And I said, well, that, that's not correct. Because if they were stupid, how come they're giving you literal interpretations? Right? They can paraphrase it. Not only that, they can give you elaborate, literal, but elaborate, even ingenious interpretations of the proverb, even though they completely missed the point. It's a bit like people who review my grant proposals. <laughs> OK, so now let's move on. So this structure in the brain is involved in metaphorical thinking, this region of the brain. Maybe on both sides, but we're sure of the left side. We're not quite sure of the right side. Now comes the punchline. <laughs> Sorry, I've been saying that for a while now. Francis Galton also described another phenomenon which people, not that many people know about. It's called number lines. He said another type of synesthesia, if you want to call it, call it that, is every, certain people will say every number has a particular location. Five is here. And when you think of numbers, you think left to right, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Some people say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. These people say one, and I see it there, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. It's occupying an undulating, complicated, convoluted line in space. And they'll actually draw this virtual line in space for you, like the next illustration shows you. It's an example of a number line. Nothing like your, you and I thinking of it left to right. Now, why the hell would this happen? Well, first of all, people said, you know, it's not real. They're just making it up. So again, first thing you do as scientists is to show it's real. How do you do that? Well, it's complicated. But several experiments we did. One, for example, if you ask somebody which number is bigger, five or six? Six, OK. 19 or 1? 19, OK. Notice when she said 19 or 1, she said it much more quickly. When I said 5 or 1, she took some time. 5 and 4. This is counterintuitive. Everybody does this. If you have two numbers close by, they take longer to say which is bigger than if they're farther apart. And people have argued this shows, scientists have argued, that there's no lookup table in your brain for numbers. If that were the case, it wouldn't matter if they're 
two numbers apart or 35 numbers apart. But in fact, there is a scalar representation in your brain. So if the numbers are close together, you can get confused. If they're further apart, it's easy to say which is big, which is small. It's counterintuitive, but it turns out there's a lot of evidence for that. Okay. So what we said was in these people, two is actually closer to 10 than to three in Cartesian geometric space, but not in, ge not in numerical space. So what would their reaction time reflect? The Cartesian space and numerical space, the answer is it's both, but primarily the Cartesian space. Now, they can't fake that. Again, this shows this has a real uh, instantiation in the brain. Better yet, they have difficulty in the kinks in doing arithmetic. That's what they claim. That's very interesting because a lot of gifted mathematicians say they have these elaborate numerical landscapes, and they wander these numerical landscapes and inspect these landscapes from different parts, and that enriches their understanding of numbers and connections. It enables them to see hidden connections, which most of us lesser mortals are incapable of. Okay, this is why I think I agree with some of the previous speakers saying synesthesia can be a gift. And all of these phenomena allow us to study this gift intensively in the laboratory. Now, why does this happen, by the way? Where do you get this uh, convoluted numbers? There I said cross-activation with number and color. And I explained it in terms of brain anatomy. Now, what the hell is going on here? Well, it's very interesting. I have only a speculation here. The way the brain evolved, it turns out abstract ideas and concepts, there's no way you can deal with them except in concrete terms, right? Unless you're a number theorist and you're drawing figures and symbols on the, on the blackboard or in the paper or doing some computation, doing it in your head, abstraction in your head, you have to do it with pre-existing structures in the brain. You're limited by that, at least in, in the way things evolved. So something like number is too abstract for the brain to handle, so it maps it onto space. We know space is represented in the brain. That's one of the primitives. Fish have a body image. We have a body image. Fish have a representation of space in the brain. It's common to all animals, right? So once you've got this pre-existing map, you say, well, let me use that. It's like people use a graph paper to map on numbers to it. And that's why you and I always left to right or up and down. So the mapping normally has some logical sequence left to right or whatever. But if this mapping gets messed up, you get this peculiar convoluted number lines. Again, it's a shamelessly phrenological view of why this happens, but I can't think of a better explanation. And we can now test this using brain, brain imaging experiments. OK, now, anything uh, else I wanted to say about Abstraction, metaphor, number lines, uh, creativity, all of that stuff. So remember, we started with this gene to brain anatomy, to buba kiki, to metaphor, to creativity, all the way to the lofty heights of Shakespeare and Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, now, let me say something else. Um, switch gears, talk about, talking about synesthesia. As I said, it's used in many different ways. Sometimes used to just talk about intrasensory interactions, okay? For example, I'll give you a striking example of one of the things we learned recently, which actually has clinical applications, it turns out. Some people have phantom limbs. When you amputate an arm, they, they continue to vividly feel the presence of that arm. And this is called a phantom arm. And people for a long time didn't know what, what was going on. In fact, people said it's wishful thinking. They want their arm back, so they imagine they have an arm. But in fact, it turns out that that's not the case they vividly feel the presence of the arm. In fact, they feel insulted if you tell them you're just imagining it, like many physicians used to do in the old days. And it's a serious clinical problem because it's intensely painful too, right? The, the hand goes into a spasm, and it's intensely painful. Some of them driven to suicide, or they become seriously depressed. 
And 90 to 95% of patients who are amputated have a phantom, and about two-thirds of them are in excruciating pain in the phantom with the fist clenched like that. So what we said was, how can you treat this? And we came up with a very simple technique. All you do is you, you take a mirror and you put it on a table like that. A cardboard box, sorry, well, you don't need that. Put it on the table, and then the phantom, the clenched, awkward phantom, which is extremely painful, is placed on the left side of the mirror. Let's assume my left side of the phantom, right? And then I ask the patient to put the right hand here, equally clenched, looking at the mirror reflection. And what does he see? He sees the mirror reflection of the normal hand superimposed on the felt location of the phantom. And he says, and he giggles, and he says, oh, you know, I can see my phantom all of a sudden, right? I'm amused by it. Then I said, now I want to open both fists, because you know if you open your fist, it might relieve the pain. He says, doctor, I've been doing this for two, 10 years now since I've had my phantom, and it's always like this, and I try to open it. It doesn't do anything. It's just more painful. And I said, but look, you can see the image of your hand resurrected in the mirror, right? As though it was there. Now open your normal hand so that it looks like the phantom is opening. And he does this, and he jumps up and down like a kid, and he says, oh my god, my phantom opened its hand. For the first time in 10 years, this clenched phantom is excruciating painful. The visual feedback that it's opening, tricking the brain into thinking that this hand is opening, the fist opens, and the pain gets relieved. And this happens in about half the patients we've tested. Now there have been extensive clinical trials, so this is not just abstract science. Some of this is actually useful in the clinic in treating phantom pain. Now, this tells you, by the way, that there's tremendous malleability of connections even in the adult brain. So much so that one sensory input can come in, change the way in which sensory information about another sensory input, your body image and your uh, sensory input, can be radically transformed so that you can suddenly start moving a phantom. In fact, after three or four weeks, the phantom disappeared completely. What he had for 10 years, phantom disappeared, right? And I said, what the hell is going on here? Uh, and I said, does this bother you? No, he said, no, in fact, all the pain I had in my phantom, the intense pain, disappeared along with the phantom. Because obviously, I can't have pain just floating out there. So when the phantom disappeared, the pain disappeared. And I think this is because of tremendous sensory conflict. Vision telling you there is no arm, right? The brain commands saying the arm is moving, and the muscle saying there's no arm. When faced with conflict, one thing the brain does is go into denial. To hell with the arm. It doesn't exist. And the bonus is you don't feel the pain. So this shows you the tremendous malleability of connections in the brain. But earlier, I emphasized in synesthesia the genetic aspects, that there are connections which are made as a result of a malfunctioning gene. Again, going back to genetic aspects of body image, these experiments with mirrors, all of this can be found in my book, by the way, which is called A Brief Tour of Consciousness, or in my earlier book called Phantoms in the Brain. Um, that's where we were about two years ago. But it turns out the body image, to a significant extent, is specified by genes. Right? It turns out, and I'm going to talk about a very specific phenomenon. Every, often, every now and then, a student will get up in the audience uh, when I'm lecturing and say, Dr. Ramachandran, what about being gay? Could there also be cross-wiring in the brain? Synesthesia. Right? Well, I don't know the answer to that. But transsexuals, there are patients who will come. I don't even call them patients because you see them in, you know, it's only part of the spectrum of human sexuality from extreme heterosexual, um, sort of extreme male to extreme female, uh, some people are transsexuals. And they'll say, right from the time I was born, I felt like a woman trapped in a man's body in every respect, in the things I like, 
the toys I like, and in fact, I feel like, uh, what did I say? Man trapped in a woman's body, is that what I said? No, woman trapped in a man's body, is that what I said? Yes. Okay, or the other, the other way around. Or the person says, I'm really a woman trapped, that's what, yeah. Or I'm a man, I feel like a man, but in fact, I'm trapped in a woman's body. Or I feel like a woman, I'm trapped in a man's body. Now, people used to think they were nuts. And they used to go to psychotherapy, and you know, people said, this is, you know, it's obviously in your head and all of that. So we decided to study this. This is what we do, by the way. We take people like phantom limbs or synesthesia, where everybody has brushed it aside. I thought these people were crazy. Bring it from the, into the laboratory and study them intensively. So we said, well, what causes transsexuality? And the women will say, women will say, I really feel like a man trapped in a woman's body. And the man will say, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. And in fact, this appendage doesn't belong to me. It feels odd, right? And I've always felt that. I felt like a woman, but I don't know what this appendage is doing here, meaning their penis, of course, yeah. Now, it turns out that if you amputate the penis in normal heterosexual men, again, I, only missed, I shouldn't use the word normal, but in most of the population, male population, if I amputate the penis for carcinoma, which does happen, traumatic amputation, or a jealous spouse, or anything, for all these reasons, <laughs> If the, the amputation occurs, extraordinarily, 90% of these people experience a phantom penis, including sometimes phantom erections. Okay? Now the question is, what about these male-to-female transsexuals who have a surgery to become female? Would they experience a phantom penis because they never felt like a man to begin with and the penis was never part of their body image? The answer is most of them don't. Now, this is extraordinary because it shows your internal body image is genetically hardwired in your brain, so is your external anatomy of your body. Normally, these are in sync. In early embryogenesis, hormones kick in and do, do things to your brain to make you male or female, do things to your body to match. If there's a mismatch, you get a transsexual, right? Even more extraordinary is the fact that the female to male transsexuals who say, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body. I don't think these breasts don't feel like they belong to me, da 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 da, okay? When we question them very carefully, right from very early childhood, as far back as they can remember, they have had a phantom penis. I'm talking about perfectly normal women who just have this propensity to become men, right? Have a phantom penis. I said, my God, this is amazing. These people have been around for hundreds of thousands of years. Nobody observed, you know, I asked them this question or talked to them. So now, first, of course, we sent it to a journal. And the journal, you know, referees always raise objections. Somebody once said, referees are swine. <laughs> but sometimes the swine can lead you to truffle, right? So sometimes what they say is useful, so you have to read what they say. So one of the referees said, how do you know they're not making it up? You know, maybe these are women who want their penis envy or something. These are women who want to become men, so they experience a phantom penis, or they think, they're imagining that they have a penis. That's all it is. How do you know for sure that they have a phantom penis? Now, if they do have a phantom penis, it's extraordinary, because right down to the fine details of your body image in your brain, in the parietal lobe, is specified by genes, including your, the, the anatomy of your sexual body image. Right? So no one would have expected that till people studied these, people, these individuals. How do we know they're, really, they're not making it up? Well, for, first of all, they give you very specific details. It's five inches long, it's leaning to the left, da-da-da-da. But there are two very important reasons. One reason is 
they say it doesn't become erect during erotic arousal. And you can talk to different people, not the same person. So they said sometimes the erotic arousal, but sometimes spontaneous, and it's embarrassing. Even though I know I don't have one, so why should it be embarrassing? But I have an erection of the phantom penis, and it happens for no reason, it's embarrassing. Now, if they were making it up, remember I said earlier, if, somebody, if you think somebody's making it up, it means you're not smart enough to figure it out. Why would they say that? If they're trying to convince you that they have a phantom penis, but they, in fact they don't, they're imagining it, they would imagine it when they're having erotic arousal, right? But in fact, the opposite is true. Another statement I make, glib statement I made to the referees is, look, most normal men, many normal men, want a much longer penis. But this doesn't lead to a phantom lengthening of their <laughs> penis. My colleague, Professor Anstis, has studied this and tells me this. So let's go back to synesthesia, right? <laughs> So this is just to emphasize the interplay between nature and nurture. Um, okay, finally, I said I can take you all the way from, how are we doing for time? Do you have another five minutes or? Okay, okay. this is the last slide. Um, you can go all the way from the literal forms of synesthesia which scientists have been studying to talking about metaphor and Shakespeare. I'll conclude with the greatest icon of Indian art, which is the Shiva Nataraja, the dance of the cosmic dance of Shiva, the supreme lord of the universe. By the way, let me preface by, this by saying I'm not preaching Hinduism, I'm not a practicing Hindu. As I told you earlier, I'm an agnostic, leaning, maybe leaning towards believing in something or the other, but I'm an agnostic, okay? But this is a beautiful example of the use of metaphor in visual art. Everybody knows metaphor is used in literature, but here's an example of visual art. Now, this is the great cosmic dance of Shiva, which is supposed to represent the dance of the cosmos of the universe itself. And he, of course, is at the heart of this cosmos. And there's so many, so much metaphor going on here. First of all, at a very literal level, you can see how he's delicately poised. Uh, his right leg bent slightly, the left leg raised, and his arms um, balancing each other out. And what the artist is trying to convey here, beyond mere saying there's a guy with several arms dancing, right, is trying to say, He's trying to convey simultaneously the frenzy and agitation of the cosmos. Here is Shiva dancing, which the, all the energy and movement of the cosmos. But right in the center of it, he's tranquil and poised. And that means behind all this turmoil and agitation of the, of the universe, of the world, of the human heart, there lies something supreme and real and permanent and timeless. And that is Shiva himself. So he's conveying, it's an oxymoron, agitation and movement and dance on the one hand with perfect stability and serenity and balance and poise on the other hand. And how brilliantly he has succeeded in con conveying that. Now let's go to the flames. Let's look at the aureole, the halo. The flames symbolize the punctuated nature. The aureole itself represents the cyclical nature of time, of creation and destruction, which in physics is called the oscillating universe of Fred Hoyle. And, and the notion of an eternity of cycles, right? Somebody talked about the Kali Yuga earlier. And the flames represents the punctuated nature of time, right? And now let's look at the arms. And by the way, the hair flying off and the arms flailing off and the legs is what gives you this impression of movement and energy, right? The hair flailing off, this tremendous energy in the, in, of the cosmos. But look at his right hand and the left hand. The right hand holds a little tambour and that tambour symbolizes the rhythm of the cosmos and also the pulse beat of animate matter, right, and of creation. 
So it represents the rhythm of creation, but balancing it out exactly in the other arm is the flame of destruction, saying that there is creation on the one hand and destruction on the other hand, and of course Shiva, the eternal truth, right in the middle. And then let's go further. Look at this bent leg here. This bent leg, which is what gives the whole image poise and balance, is crushing this hideous little dwarf. I don't know, people at the back may not be able to see it. It's called the dwarf of Apasmara or Maya. So what is that dwarf? It is a dwarf, hideous dwarf of illusion and ignorance that humans are so prone to. And that is the illusion. What is the illusion? The illusion that all of us scientists have, that the cosmos, that the world is nothing but the mindless agitation of molecules and atoms, when in fact, that's not, and then we come here and we briefly inspect this cosmos, and then we disappear. So this is a scientific worldview. So what Shiva is saying, or the artist is saying, is when you eliminate this delusion, this ignorance, you'll realize you are not an aloof spectator who has emerged briefly to inspect the cosmos. In fact, you're part of the great dance of Shiva, part of the cosmos. When you realize this, you lose the fear of death, and you realize that you're one with the cosmos, and and then this hand here is pointing to his raised foot. And he said, once you dispel that illusion, the veil of maya, and realize that you're really one with the cosmos, you attain salvation and bliss and oneness with the supreme God. Okay? And he's blessing you with that heart. And then be happy, all will be well. Right? So now all of this metaphor, I don't even go into his expression, which simultaneously expresses serene calmness, and, and you, know, you can go on and on for the next three hours, but I won't. Now, when the English Victorian um, historians, art historians, arrived in India and they looked at this, and they referred to it as a multi-armed monstrosity. <laughs> and the first person to do this was Sir George Birdwood. He said, how can people have five, you know, four arms flailing around? And of course, he completely missed the point, missed the metaphorical aspect. No Indian, believe me, well, maybe there are a few, but most Indians don't think there's a man up there with four arms flying around and dancing. Everybody understands that it's symbolic and metaphorical. Nobody thinks, for example, the cross is Jesus Christ. It's a symbol. It's an antenna to Christ. You don't say that stick with two sticks. Well, that's it. That's Christ. Nobody in their right mind would say that. And the same is true of Shiva. If Sir George Birdwood had been alive today, I would have asked him the rhetorical question, hey, you think this is a multi-armed monstrosity. What about angels? You know, they're little babies with wings. Don't you think that is a monstrosity? Right? In fact, as a medical man, I can tell you, some babies are born with extra limbs. But I've never seen a baby with wings. So you're more justified in calling an angel a monstrosity than the Lord Shiva. Right? But that's a rhetorical point. I think underlying all religions is the same truth, the same uh, truth that we're all striving for. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.